The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon, An Earnest Expectation, Part 2, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. Well, in our ongoing consideration now of Romans chapter 8, we have been contemplating together, if you will, the blessed status of the one who has been justified through faith alone in Christ alone. There has been a tremendous blessing conferred upon the one who has been justified through faith alone in Christ alone, due exclusively the grace of God poured out on us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those justified in the sight of God through faith are beneficiaries, if you will, of every blessing associated with the Spirit of God in this life. They possess an inheritance of unimaginable value, which is in the life to come. Blessings in this life, a glorious inheritance in the life which is to come. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The Bible describes that glorious inheritance to us in veiled terms, but the terms that it uses are unmitigated terms. It's a glory that will be ours as co-heirs together with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's a glory which we know, John 17, has been given to him by the the Father, and a glory which in turn he has then given to us. It's a glory which involves possession of and reign over the everlasting kingdom. It's a glory which involves perfect, our perfect conformity to the, the perfect conformity of our lowly estate to his exalted estate or his exalted person. It's a glory that will bring us everlasting joy in beholding him face to face in eternity forever. It's an incomparable glory that will be both revealed in us and revealed to us at the Lord's return when the sons of God will be revealed at the end of the age. In the heart and in the mind of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, that sure, that certain glory sits at the end of what can often feel like now a very long and difficult road. It's ours, that's certain. Right? It's ours. It is reserved in heaven for us, incorruptible, undefiled, not fading away, reserved in heaven for us. But what sits now in our experience between this moment and our heavenly glory is sure and certain suffering. The suffering, the affliction, the trials, the tribulations, which are the present portion of every faithful Christian in this life. Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We are called to be faithful during that tribulation. We're called to to an enduring and persevering witness for Jesus Christ during that tribulation. In a world, in a context in which people hate that testimony. Uh, We're uh, called to a, a mission, as it were, in a world that hates Jesus Christ. We're to be sheep in the midst of wolves. And in the face of persecution, in the face of that difficulty, in the face of adversity, there is the temptation to shrink back. Paul's concern here in Romans chapter 8 
not only to assure the believer, which he absolutely is, uh, he wants the believer to be assured of this glorious inheritance that we have, right? This blessed status that has been conferred upon the one who has put faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul's concern is also a faithful and persevering witness. If you're with us in our study of Revelation on Sunday nights, we've talked about that with respect to the seven churches. The Lord's concern as he walks in the midst of the lampstands is a faithful and persevering witness in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. That's Paul's concern here as we deal with suffering in chapter 8. It's a persevering and faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in this generation as we await his soon return. And although seemingly long and seemingly difficult, the afflictions that we face in this life, in reality, brothers and sisters, are momentary and light in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. They can't even be held properly in balance together. One far outweighs the other. So as we think about Paul's text here, Romans chapter 8, Paul's concern is a persevering and faithful witness for Jesus Christ. We're here, brothers and sisters, to preach the gospel. We're here to be a witness. We're here to be a light that shines in a dark place. And the persecution that comes, comes as a result of our witness. The Lord himself in the upper room with his disciples in John chapter 16 said, this world hated me because it hated me, it's going to hate you also. We're to be a faithful and persevering witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That hope we have of glory, that hope that we have of our inheritance should be an anchor for our soul as we persevere in faith as a witness for him. It is sure and steadfast. And why is that? Why is it sure and steadfast? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, our elder brother, the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, the first fruits of the new creation, he himself has gone before us and we are united to him. His resurrection has become our resurrection. His death to sin, his death for sin has become our death to sin. We are united to him and he has gone before us. He has entered the presence behind the veil. He always lives now to make intercession for us and he has gone there to prepare a place for us there that where he is, we may be also. So while we live in this present life, in this present earthly tent, as Paul would say, We must keep our eyes fixed on him. He is our hope. So that tremendous glory then that Paul is referencing, the the consummation of all of God's redemptive plans and purposes is set, if you will, against its negative. That glory set against the suffering, the trials, the tribulations of this present age. The full and final victory of the promised seed of the woman is set in contrast, if you will, with the present ongoing devastation caused by the seed of the serpent. Future redemption is set against the backdrop of the curse, where not just man, but the entire cosmos, that word meaning created order, not just man, but the entire created order has been ravaged by man's sin against God. Paul describes the agony of that current condition, right? If glory is set in contrast with suffering, Paul explains the agony of that suffering, the agony of our current condition, while we await the revealing of the sons of God, he describes it in terms of three groanings. In verse 19, 
the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 22, the whole creation groans. It labors, travails with birth pangs together until now. Until now. Not only that, verse 23, we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the redemption of our body, our adoption, our consummated full adoption. Finally, verse 26, the Spirit himself groans for us, groans on our behalf, as it were, with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we began part one last week by considering the groaning of all creation in verses 19 through 21. Creation is personified, and creation is personified as groaning together with us under the ravages of our own sin. And that groaning of creation is said in terms of one, an earnest expectation, two, an unwilling subjection, and three, the anticipation of a glorious deliverance. The last week, we began by looking at point one and the creation's earnest expectation in verse 19. Four, verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, that single word, that single Greek word translated earnest expectation, that pictures the entire created order looking over the horizon, so to speak, in anticipation of a coming deliverance raising its chin, as it were, stretching out its head, its neck, on its tiptoes, looking off in the distance, waiting, as it were, longing to see, as it were, a promised redemption to appear over the horizon. That eager wait, not set in terms of present joy or present happiness or present consolation, but rather set in terms of an anxious groaning lament, set in terms of agony, under the weight of man's sin, under the weight of the curse, Creation is seen as suffering in agony. That's expressed in the language of verse 22, that creation groans. It labors under the affliction of birth pangs until now. Now, praise God again, they're not death pangs, right? There is a joy that is set before us. So they're not death pangs, they're birth pangs. One day, this suffering will give birth to glory. But as we're beginning to see in our study of Revelation on Sunday evenings, those birth pangs continue to increase in frequency. Those birth pangs continue to increase in severity. They don't end in death. They end in glory. They end, they culminate or climax in the judgment of the wicked. They climax in the the, the defeat of death itself, and they eventuate, terminate in the birth of a new heavens and a new earth where, where righteousness dwells. They culminate in the return of Jesus Christ and in the revealing of the sons of God. Now, that agony of creation, that anxious, longing, groaning under the weight of the curse is explained in point two on your notes as an unwilling subjection. Verse 20, because the creation was subjected to futility. Why does creation groan? Why is it personified as groaning? Because it was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but it was subjected because of him who subjected it in hope. Why the persistent labor? Why the toil? Why the agony, the groaning lament until now? The creation was unwillingly subjected to futility. That word futility is a word that refers to uselessness incapable of producing the results that it should produce, 
incapable of producing the desired results. Creation, as we know, has been placed under a curse. And now, cursed by God, the creation is unable to produce that which God has, as creator, had originally intended creation to produce. It groans in agony, not being able to fulfill the purpose of its creation. Rather than being a part of God's good design to spread the glory of God over the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea, creation is now with man placed under bondage to corruption. It is enslaved, as it were, to decay. Like man, creation is subjected to futility, uselessness, as it were, ruin, devastation, decay, and death. In that sense... The creation shares in the curse of man that comes as a result of the fall. Creation itself is cursed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake. As we learned this morning in Sunday school, God curses Adam at the very point of his labor that God has given him to do. Curses him at the very point of his labor. And we know this from firsthand experience, don't we? We know the creation is cursed. We can see it. Paul presents this as an evident fact in verse 22, because we know that the whole creation groans and labors. We see the effect of it. We see the effect of it. Leaves are changing right now. Everybody's talking about the leaves changing. It's going to be peak season. We've got to go see the leaves change. That's death. (laughs) Every leaf as the leaf is, ch- is groaning, groaning and slowly dying before it releases its grip on the tree and plummets to its death on the ground. And we watch that. We enjoy looking at dying leaves. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's an indication of creations. You can hear the, gre- the leaf you know, dying on the tree. <laughs> death decay, ruin. It's the ravages of man's sin. And yet, at the same time, isn't it interesting? At the very same time, what we see is still a display, albeit a a muted display of the glory of God in creation. The glory of God cannot be hidden, cannot be concealed by the ravages of man's sin. It's been marred. The image of God in man, marred by man's sin. The glory of God in creation, marred by man's sin. And yet we still, by the grace of God, can see it. The heavens declare his glory. The firmament shows his handiwork. His invisible attributes, Romans 1, clearly seen in the things that are made so that man is without excuse. His eternal power, even his godhood. But Paul describes this subjection on the part of creation as unwilling, as unwilling. And again... We have to embrace the use of figurative language here in the Bible. This is figurative language. Language of personification, if you will. Creation does not have a will. Creation has no will. But here, Paul describes the subjection of creation to the curse as against the will of the created order. And in considering Paul's intended meaning behind that, we might use terms like unnatural or against nature to describe creation's personified willful resistance. Death, brothers and sisters, is unnatural. Death is an unnatural state of affairs. Death is something that does not come natural to the creation. Creation has been subjected 
to that death, as it were, unwillingly. It's not natural. Decay, corruption, destruction, ruin, all of it is unnatural. The defilement that exists because of man's sin upon the earth is unnatural. It's as though the earth bears the weight of this defilement because of man's sin. It's against God's original intent, not in keeping with the original created order of things. And in that sense, creation has been subjected unwillingly. You can think of all kinds of examples. We just meditate on that for a moment, right? All kinds of examples. One in particular that comes to mind is the perversion, if you will, of homosexuality. Talk about futility. Futility. The natural order under the the futility and defilement of man's sin and the created order becomes perverted, becomes corrupted. All kinds of examples of that very thing. Disease in the world, a perversion, a corruption, if you will, of God's created order, God's good design. The creation subjected unwillingly to disorder and decay and destruction and death. And ultimately, unlike man, the creation exercised no choice leading to the curse. No choice leading to the circumstances under which the creation now suffers. And in that sense, creation was subjected unwillingly to futility. Creation bears no guilt, bears no responsibility for the fall, and yet creation with man is subjected to futility that is placed under the curse. And it's placed under the curse for his sake, because of man. Man is cursed. Its subjection cannot be traced to its own will. Its subjection cannot even be traced really to the will of man, but rather ultimately to the will of God who subjected it in hope. Verse 20, the creation, the created order, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope. It should be evident all around us how grievously we've sinned against God. To any rationally thinking, to any thinking person, it should be abundantly evident how grievously we have sinned against God. Everywhere we look, we see the ravages of our sin against God. And yet we can live life, go about your merry way, (laughs) eat, drink, and be merry, and not give it a second thought, right? What is that? That's Romans chapter one. That is sinful man suppressing the truth of God in his unrighteousness. Suppressing the truth of God in his sin. The very creation screams at us that we have defiled the created order with our sin. It should tell us how grievously we've sinned against God. I remember witnessing to a lady one time who was at her doorstep and her basic argument with me was that she could never follow or never submit herself to a God who would allow children to die. Um, That's not God. That is the, the consequence of man's sin against God. You want to level the blame for that? Level the blame at the feet of man. Your own sin. Our own sin. Sin contributes to that. I read yesterday, just thinking about these things, but read that um, in the world, now the mortality rate of infants has plummeted substantially. In the 1990s, for example, it was upwards of 16,000, 17,000 children under the age of five die every single day. Um, 
And now the mortality rate is down such that we're like bragging that it's down to 13,800 children that die under the age of five every single day. Those deaths largely, vastly preventable. Preventable deaths, 13,800 children dying. Listen, when you add to that, add to that the 74 million abortions that are committed every single year worldwide, and that's just the ones that we know about, that's 213,800 children that die every single day. That screams man's rebellion against God. The created order subjected unwillingly to futility that we would murder 200,000 babies a day on the altar of our own convenience. What an abhorrent, depraved testimony of the wickedness of man's heart and their sin against God. It is unconscionable, screams at us, and yet we live as though it were no big deal. When we further think about the creation personified here, this would explain creation's hostility toward us, <laughs> if you think about it in personified terms. Creation desires, to use Paul's use of personification here, creation desires to glorify God. Creation was created to glorify God. So creation de desires to glorify God by doing what creation was designed to do. And yet creation is forced to bear a sinful and rebellious humanity under the curse. And creation then, out of hostility toward us, as it were, won't yield food the way that it would ordinarily or naturally yield food as intended by God. Creation produces drought. Creation produces famine. Creation produces disease. Creation produces mosquitoes. And we chuckle at that, but how many, how many untold millions have mosquitoes killed on the planet? Right? There's all kinds of stuff around here that wants to kill you, <laughs> that would kill you. This explains, if you will, creation's hostility. Again, speaking, using words or terms in line with personification here, figurative language. What's really going on with that? What's really going on with that? That is the cursed creation becoming a means of man's judgment. The cursed of creation becoming a secondary cause, if you will, of the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. Scripture doesn't support an ironclad one-to-one -one correlation between natural disasters and man's sin. Doesn't support that. In John chapter 9, the blind man, the man born blind. Why is this man, why was he born blind? Was it his own sin or his parents' sin? Neither, the Lord says. It's so that God's works might be shown manifest in him. Scripture doesn't support an ironclad one-to-one -one correlation between natural disasters or disease or these forms of judgment and man's sin. But certainly some sin does produce a natural, a quote-unquote natural consequence, doesn't it? Sin has certainly corrupted the created order. Man's sin is said to have defiled the earth, and so creation does bear a general curse, if you will, against our sin. But God certainly can, and God certainly does, use creation's 
latent hostility, if you will, as a judgment against us. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want to consider this together with you. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want to flesh this out just a bit. Look there, Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning at verse 15. God does use this created order that has been subjected unwillingly to a curse. He does use that created order to pour out his wrath and his judgment even now. Verse 15, it shall come to pass, this is speaking of uh, covenant curses, if you will, against Israel. It shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. In other words, there's going to be famine. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body. Cursed the produce of your land. Cursed the increase of your cattle and cursed the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land in which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching. You see all the references to the created order here and God's use of the created order in judging mankind? And with mildew, they shall pursue you until you perish. And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze. And the earth, which is under you, shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. We see those very same covenant curses, don't we? Poured out in the judgments of the great tribulation in Revelation. Even now as we're studying Revelation chapter 6. The created order seems to militate against humanity in general, and that's because of man's sin in general. And the present and ongoing nature of creation's evident hostility against humanity, ultimately an expression of God's righteous wrath against man's sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God, and again, the language, the grammar, is present active and ongoing for the wrath of God presently, actively in an ongoing way, being currently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. If you're in covenant with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, you've turned from your sin to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then God promises, promises us, Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. But God's people also suffer, don't they, under the ravages, under the consequence of a man's sin in general. And what may be poured out on some in terms of judgment God has promised, again, Romans chapter 8, that he is working together all things for our good. That even those temporal judgments, even those temporal trials, those temporal difficulties, that adversity 
is meant by God, intended by God, determined by God to do us good. That doesn't mean uh, that this world isn't deserving of judgment and God already pouring out his judgments upon the earth. When you look at those judgments in Revelation, those are judgments, Matthew chapter 24, for example. Those are judgments that are already being poured out. This is a time, described by the Bible, this is a time of tribulation. Those judgments of God being poured out. So when we see in the world, for example, I remember this in the news vividly when the AIDS epidemic became front page news. And there were those who were immediately crying out, this is a judgment of God against that sin. There is absolutely, absolutely a correlation between man's sin and God's use of these temporal judgments against man's sin. Absolutely. There's no question about that. The Bible is completely clear. What should that tell us? Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the king of an everlasting kingdom which shall never be destroyed. This one will melt with a fervent heat. That one will never go away. And that is a kingdom where righteousness dwells, where you will never experience the ravages of man's sin upon creation ever again. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. It should scream to people that there is a judgment coming against sin. That judgment already being poured out. And what we see in Revelation and what we see even here is that that pouring out of judgment increases in frequency and increases in severity until the end finally comes and gives birth to a new creation. That is birth pangs like birth pangs on a pregnant woman. It's going to increase in frequency and increase in severity until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in victory. It's the, back in Romans chapter 8, although the creation now has been unwillingly subjected to futility, and that by the will, by the decree of God himself, and although the creation now groans and laments in agony, laboring with birth pangs together until now, the creation is still described as eagerly waiting. The creation is still described there as having an earnest expectation. Why is that? What is the earnest expectation? Why the eager waiting? It's because God has subjected the creation in hope. He has subjected it, but he has subjected it in hope. It is the earnest expectation of the creation, verse 21, that it will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It is subjected in hope. Its hope is a glorious deliverance from its bondage to corruption. Like the children of God, creation has a sure and certain hope. Point three on your notes. It is the sure and certain hope of a glorious deliverance. Verse 21. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of creation, uh, corruption. Creation will be delivered from the curse, in other words, and into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There is coming a day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be a day in which the sons of God will be revealed, verse 19, and a day in which we will enjoy the full consummation of our full and final deliverance. And what will that deliverance entail? It will entail our deliverance from our bondage to corruption. 
Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is anticipating, he's groaning for that future day in which we will experience the full and final consummated glorious deliverance from our bondage to corruption. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, this body is sown in corruption, it must put on incorruption. This body is sown in dishonor, it must be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. All of the the effects of the curse will finally cease. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain. Why? The former things have passed away. And that's at the time that this creation is also personified as eagerly anticipating. The Bible speaks of the creation itself being wonderfully transformed. Turn with me to Amos, Amos chapter 9. Let's look at a few of these texts together. Amos chapter 9, look there beginning at verse 13. right before Obadiah in your Bible. (laughs) Amos chapter 9, look at verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Now what he's speaking of is he's speaking about this deliverance. He's speaking about a future point in which the earth will be restored. Creation will be restored. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. What does he mean by that? The earth will eventually, will one day produce so readily that periods of planting and harvesting are going to run right up against periods of periods of harvesting, right? Are going to run right up against periods of planting. They're going to run up against each other. <laughs> the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. The hills shall flow with it. Verse 14, I will bring back the captives of of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land. They shall no longer be pulled up for the land from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Words of time of great plenty. Look back at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30. And verse 23 there. God says at this time that the people are going to throw away their idols. They're going to throw away their idols as if they're casting off an unclean thing. And then, having been cleansed or purified in that way, verse 23, then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat curd fodder. Cured fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the great day or in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and this current wicked generation is put down, when the towers fall, there will be plenty in the new heavens and the new earth. Desolation, devastation, death, decay gives way to blessing, gives way to prosperity. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, and this is in keeping with the new covenant. In the text where we see the Lord giving 
the new covenant, the promise to God's people. Look at Ezekiel 36 and look there at verse 28 or 26. Start there at verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. Verse 26, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what takes place when the Lord saves someone. You see, this is not merely the fruit of his of decision, you know, raising a hand, walking an aisle, saying, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. No, this is the work that God does in the one whom God saves. I will put, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. That's, that's spoken by God. That's a sure thing. God's people are those who walk in his statutes. God's people are those who keep his judgments and do them. Why? Because God has put his spirit within them and caused them to do that. Then, verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Covenant language. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your evil deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your own sake will I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. He'll do it for the sake of his own great name. In other words, there is coming a day when the curse will be reversed. When this day happens, it's as though, in the words of Psalm 98, the rivers will clap their hands. The hills will rejoice with singing before the Lord. Right? Creation will rejoice Why? Because it's no longer subjected to futility. It has been granted with man a glorious deliverance in the work, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The effects of the curse wiped out. Elsewhere, those effects of the curse seen in the relationship between man and beast. Look back at Isaiah chapter 11. We're skipping around here a little bit. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. And again, what we're... What the Lord is communicating through the words of the prophet to that generation and to ours is a reversal, a reversal of the curse, a reverse of cursed conditions at the redemption, the full and final redemption of man at the end of the age. Isaiah chapter 11, look at verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. In other words, the death that was brought into the world through man's sin has now been eradicated and it's reversed now the fallen relationships between man and beast. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together, little child shall lead them. The cow shall and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. In other words, the lion's not going to eat the ox. (laughs) The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. There's going to be no fear of death. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the creation manifests the purpose for which it was created. A world of life 
and peace and joy and liberty from sin and death and decay and devastation and corruption. That is the glorious liberty that the children of God will enjoy on that day. It's a liberty from the bondage of corruption. And it's the same liberty to which the whole of creation will be delivered at our revealing. And creation is personified as eagerly waiting for it. The whole creation, like us, will be freed from the curse. It's on that day the trees of the field will clap their hands. The mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing before our God. Instead of the thorn, a sign of the curse, shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the bristle, the briar, shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. An everlasting testimony, if you will, an everlasting monument to the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Revelation 22.3, a text that we read this morning during our time of singing, there shall be no more curse. <laughs> That's the end of it all. Revelation 22, verse 3, there shall be no more curse. Sin has fully and finally been dealt with. The creation then has a well-grounded reason, a well-grounded hope for its deliverance from its bondage to corruption, and it will be a glorious deliverance. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered or even come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. That is the magnificent end of all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The glorious end of all of those who have turned from sin to follow him. Revelation 21 verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. The one who overcomes is the one who perseveres to the end. Perseveres in faithfulness. Perseveres, endures as a faithful witness until the end. What will be the end of those who have persisted during this period of tribulation, have persisted in rebellion and in unbelief. What will be the end of those? Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the, those who shrink back, those who fall back, they fall back to perdition. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, Sexually more, remind you from the Beatitudes, those are those who harbor anger in their heart without a cause. Like many of you, like me, uh, when the Lord saved me, I was angry, just angry all the time, angry at everything. You know, cut me off in traffic, you'll rue the day, right? I was just angry. I would, and the Lord has saved me from, forgiven me for that anger. Like, um, anger is the seed of murder. Murderers, sexually immoral. That is any, any involvement in sexual immorality outside of marriage. Any sexual action, thought, imagination, desire 
out of God's intended purpose for marriage is sexually immoral, sexual immorality. If you're looking at stuff you shouldn't look at, that's sexually immoral. If you're doing things you shouldn't do, that is sexually immoral. Do you see? In other words, it's not just uh, adultery against a wife. That is um, the extent of sexual immorality. It covers the gamut. You see, it covers a spectrum. Idolaters. You can idolize video games. You can, there are all kinds of things in this world. Idolize money. Idolize family. I, things that God gave us for our good, we can turn them into idols. Calvin said our hearts are factories for idols. Cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Of the new creation, John says, there, verse 27, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles. Well, you might say, well, the moment I enter it is the moment it becomes defiled. That would be true. That would be true if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been cleansed from your defilement, praise God. And that's how we enter, by his righteousness alone. Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your existence, as long as you persist at enmity with God, as long as you persist in rebellion against the one who has created you exclusively for his glory, your existence is unnatural. Think about that. Anything that defiles, anything that is contrary to God's good purpose, that means as long as you persist in sin, as long as you persist in rebellion against God, you are unnatural to the created order. And one day, all of those things will be put aside. And what will be natural, as it were, is God's created order, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Those who persist in sin will be, there's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. And you'll share that place with them. The creation has the good sense to groan under the weight of man's sin. What about your condition? Do you groan under the weight of your own sin or do you continue to glory in it? If you groan under the weight of your own sin, then turn from sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will cleanse you from your sin. He will forgive you of all of your unrighteousness and he will give you an inheritance in glory. Why will you die? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked man would turn from his unrighteousness and live. All of creation, all of creation will one day finally and fully produce the intended reflection of God's glory that God had intended for it to produce, including those that are, including those who will perish in eternity, in hell. They'll glorify for all eternity God's perfect justice. The redemption of creation is ultimately the redemption of his people. The redemption of creation and the ultimate redemption of his people is the great aim toward which God is now moving all of redemptive history to fulfill. He's working all things together toward that glorious end, and God will complete the work that he's begun. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ that you might not be subjected to futility, 
but trust in Christ that you might be filled with hope in believing and have the hope that all creation even will rejoice in. If you're here today, you've turned from sin to put your faith in Christ, then brother, sister, persevere to the end. Endure to the end. We have a hope. That hope is there. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and do not turn to the right. Do not turn to the left. Keep your head down and keep plowing forward. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And the, the sons of God eagerly await their revealing. <laughs> Amen. We groan ourselves. Because, verse 21, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We have glory to look forward to, and it's a blessed promise. Amen? And we can trust him who has given it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your glorious promises to us. The fact that although you didn't have to, Lord, you have condescended in such mercy and grace as to make provision for our sin. Not just provision for our sin, Lord, but provision for our sin at the cost of your only begotten Son. And help us, Lord, not to count that blood of the covenant a common thing, but to revel in it, to exult in it, to be grateful in it, to rejoice in it, and to worship because of it. May all praise, honor, glory, blessing, might, dominion, and power be to your name. And Lord, may you be praised in eternity. May you in all uh, eternity inhabit the praise of your people. You are worthy to be praised. I pray, Lord, for those here who are continuing to live in futility, that you would, for the glory of your own name, would turn them from futility to faith and would save them for your own name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen.